It was an unmodified, unlimited acceptance, an eternal yay. Jill suddenly had the feeling that Smith would unhesitatingly jump out the window if she told him to, in which belief she was correct. He would have jumped, enjoyed every scant second of the twenty-story drop, and accepted without surprise or resentment the discorporation on impact. Nor would he have been unaware that such a fall would kill him. Fear of death was an idea utterly beyond him. If a Water Brother selected him for such a strange discorporation, he would cherish it and try to grok. This episode of the Big Readcast is dedicated to my dad, Tom Coberly. Dad loved Robert Heinlein, and was a friend to all three of us who are on the podcast today. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a podcast where we grok the biggest grokking books we can grok together. Dear Water Brothers, welcome to our Stranger in, the Strange, Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein, Big Readcast. If you haven't joined us before, uh, Bill and I are just kind of two friends who literally read books over 500 pages and talk about it. By big read, we mean a literal big read. Um, this time... We have done a sci-fi classic, which we're going to talk a lot more about, kind of its classic status and so forth to come. But actually, neither Bill nor I suggested it this time. A uh, sometime listener and longtime friend of Bill and somewhat longtime acquaintance of Joel, uh, Jared Hammond, suggested this, and he is with us as our guest host. Uh, Jared, welcome to the airwaves. Happy to be here. Cool, man. So um, usually, you know, we kind of piffle around trying to talk about maybe why we talked, you know, grabbed this book or whatever. But since you suggested it, I was hoping you could kind of talk about what the book is and maybe your own history with it and why you thought it would be kind of a fun big readcast. Sure. So I'm a a big Highland fan in general. I've read um, entirely too many of his books and stranger in a strange land is one of the ones that frequently gets identified as his best work or his most important. Um, for my part, I, I don't think it's his best, but I do think it's the one that's the most fun to talk about. Um, and I, I suggested it because I knew for one that, um, Bill had been sort of considering reading it at some point and also, uh, its publication history, um, its publication history is a bit curious insofar as he, um, wrote the book over the course of about 10 years and published a, an extremely cut down version of it as the, the manuscript that most people know. Um, and his wife, Virginia published the full unedited version, um, some years after his death. And I think, uh, almost 30 years after the publication of the original. So, uh, that put it neatly within the page count preference that you have. Um, that's <laughs> true. That was nice. Thank you. <laughs> while, while also giving me an excuse to, uh, re- reread the book and see, uh, how, how differently it tasted with, uh, out all of the fat trimmed out. 
I do like real quick. I do like Virginia's introduction where she she says like she makes an aside about copyright and and so forth, but she doesn't really go into it. She just says, "But I I thought this was the better version, and so did his publishers." And I was like, "It it probably is to you, but I just feel like even mentioning copyright made me think about like you know money, money, money. That this could be a a longer a longer cash cow in many senses of the word longer." <laughs> That's my cynical part. Sorry. So, um, so yeah. I so and I I guess uh, I was also you mentioned you read a lot of Heinlein. I actually had read like half of the original manuscript, you know, the original publication, whatever it is. Um, I read that when I was in high school, and I put it down. I don't remember why. I I had read other Heinlein and liked it, so I'm not sure if I was like annoyed or just you know sometimes in high school I got bored and stopped reading stuff. Um, you read a ton of Heinlein, Bill. A lot of Heinlein, little Heinlein. What's your Heinlein background? Uh, so it's some Heinlein. So uh, Jared mentioned that I was going to read this book at some point. And that's not just because it's a sci-fi classic. Uh, my, my dad was a huge Heinlein guy. Uh, and I know all three of us at some point had talked to my dad about Heinlein. Um, and so I'd always had Heinlein in my sort of in the back of my mind as a huge person I need to get around to reading some of. Prior to this, I had read several of the juveniles. I don't think I could list them all because I read many of them when I was a teen. But like Red Planet, for sure. Have Space Who Will Travel. Rolling Stones, Starship Troopers, which I know is kind of in between the juveniles and the adult stuff. But I hadn't read any of the sort of uh, the mature work or whatever you want to call it until this. So it had always been on the list to get around to, but uh, I have only read four or five, maybe six Heinlein books before this one, which, of course, I guess is more than I've read of most other authors, but he wrote a lot of stuff, so it doesn't feel like that much. <laughs> yeah, for, for a lot of authors, for you know, five or six books is their, their, their major corpus. Um. So just for the benefit of, of uh, anybody who's not already familiar with Heinlein coming to the, the podcast, I can give kind of a quick overview of who he was and why why anybody reads him, um, for that matter. Um, so uh, Robert Anson Heinlein um, was, uh, is often considered one of the grandmasters of science fiction, um, and I know that's a phrase that you'll see on the Wikipedia article. I won't spend too long on the biography because... Honestly, the Wikipedia article is actually very, very good at getting a quick summary of it. But for our purposes, um, he was born in uh, uh, Butler, Missouri, just a little bit south of where I am in Kansas City um, in 1907 um, and spent most of his youth in Kansas City. Um, so I have a little bit of, I don't want to call it hometown pride because I moved to Kansas City, but you know what I mean. Um <laughs> So his salient background before becoming a writer uh, was that he was trained as an engineer in the Navy. Uh, so he had a, a pretty solid background in um, physical science and a, a very practical can-do approach to uh, tackling a lot of problems. Um, and uh, after um, you know the Second World War, uh, when he had significantly less to do in the military and he was looking for uh, another Another way to support himself, uh, he turned to writing, um, and he spent about 10 years writing what are usually referred to as the juveniles or the juvies, uh, what would is approximately the same thing as what we would call, you know, YA or young adult fiction today. Um, you know, sci-fi books targeted at, you know, adolescents, primarily young men. Um, and uh, Stranger is somewhat of uh, the point of departure from those. So the, the, the last and are fairly unquestionably best of the juvies is Starship Troopers, which 
Uh, many people have also read um, there. It's been adapted into a movie. The Paul Verhoeven movement is a great satire of Starship Troopers. The camp um, camp classic easily. Yeah, uh, I, I, I like it as a Heinlein fan because it, I think it takes a great critical view of Heinlein while still making for an, an interesting movie. Um, so, but around that same time is when he started writing uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, uh, which uh, at various points was started because I want to write a book about a Martian called Smith, because I think that's funny. <laughs> um, but he, he pecked at it for, you know, 10 years or so before uh, it ever got published. So it's it was um, a pretty drawn out work. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll get to the, the meat of the text later. Uh, but he, he wrote, you know, dozens of novels um, after you know, after he stopped doing the juveniles, he won a huge number of Hugo Awards, one of the most prestigious awards in science fiction. Um, is just generally a very, very influential and important figure in um, science fiction history. So uh, even if you don't think this book is reason to consider him part of that canon, uh, it's it's definitely a good, good place to get a uh, feel for why people uh, like Heinlein. For my money, I think The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is probably his best book. Um, but his his work covers enough ground that you can justify an opinion just about anywhere on the spectrum. Yeah, that makes yeah, that's and also I mean this book itself um from the Wikipedia articles that I've read, <laughs> it made a huge splash, right? Like it was a it was a New York Times bestseller, the first New York Times bestseller that was also science fiction even though Highland sort of hated that label. Um, and even though it was panned by several critics, it, it won the Hugo Award itself um, and was sort of like an instant wave maker from what I understand. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. OK. Um, well, I think. Yeah. So I, I think before we, we get into even some of our bigger questions, I'm going to make Bill do his usual tap dance. Um, if, if you can. I mean, especially for a book that is sort of has this much both this much and this little plot. Um, if you could kind of take us through bill, maybe what happens in this book as well as possible. And then maybe we'll, we'll get into actually discussing it. <laughs> Absolutely. So stranger in a strange land was, as Jared said, first published in 1961. And then the uncut edition, which we're reading was published in 1991, exactly 30 years later. Um, so this, all, but all of it was written in 61. Uh, 25 years ago, a the first manned ship to Mars had 20 had some number of people on it, and everything went to hell. And the only thing that ended up happening was everyone else died, but a baby who was born en route was raised by Martians. So a human baby named Valentine Michael Smith was raised by Martians and discovered after he'd lived there for 25 years by the second manned mission to Mars and taken back to Earth. Um, the rest of the book is about what this guy gets up to having been raised on Mars by the Martians and thinking entirely as a Martian as he tries to figure out how human society works and then eventually figures out what to do about changing how human society works because it needs to be changed. Um, Smith is thus kind of the protagonist, but in many ways he's not really the point of view character very often. Um, one of the things that's kind of funny about this book is it has a plot where various things happen and various shady government people get up to misdeeds, but a lot of the book is really sort of philosophical conversations either between Mike, as he's usually called, and someone else, or that, uh, Jubal Hershaw, who is a, uh, a bon vivant, gourmet, sybarite, popular author extraordinary, and neo-pessimist philosopher, that's oh how he's introduced gosh. to us, and Hershaw, not Hershaw, um, Jubal Harshad does a lot of talking basically to himself in a sort of a Socratic dialogue, <laughs> uh, which is where a lot of our philosophy in the book actually comes from. Um, so what happens in the book 
is a lot of people talk about stuff. But in the meantime, Smith gets taken back, and because of certain weirdnesses in Earth law, he stands to inherit a tremendous amount of money and also to be sort of kind of the ruler of Mars in Earth law, which, of course, would surprise the Martians who live there. And that's one of the main subplots. So a lot of people have a big interest in trying to lock down Michael Smith and getting him to to do what they want. A nurse named Jillian Boardman sneaks him out of the hospital, uh, partly in working with a, a journalist that she's sort of in a relationship with, and sneaks him to Jubal Harshaw's sort of retreat in the Poconos, where he lives with his three beautiful secretaries and cranks out sort of weird fiction and philosophizes to himself. Harshaw takes it upon himself to act as Smith's lawyer, secures him basically to have all the money he wants without being murdered by anybody, and then tries to teach Michael Smith how to be a human person. Pretty quickly early on, we discover that not only is Mike Smith, you know, very strange and views the world through a different lens, he's also basically a superhero. Uh, by learning to view the world the way the Martians do, he has tremendous control not only of his own physical functions, but he can sort of make people and things disappear out of existence and levitate things. And it becomes pretty clear there's very little upward limit on what Mike Smith can do. Uh, as the book progresses, we realize this isn't that he's some sort of unique it's not, it's not an inherent ability he was born with, it's just that he was trained up in the Martian way of thinking, and anybody could learn how to do this, with anybody sufficiently disciplined to do it. Um, he sort of, uh, he, he has a, gosh, this is a lot, isn't it? This book is a lot of things. Yeah, this okay. is good, this is good. The funny thing is, is at this point, we can't really tell if you've summarized the first 10 pages of the first 200. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> with this book, well, most of it's conversations, and then it's like a giant sex cult. <laughs> yeah, that's important. The sex cult is crucial. Not convinced of that, actually. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that. That'll be fun. <laughs> um, but there are two terms that are important. The first is grok, which is actually uh, one of those words that has leapt from the pages of this book into common parlance. It's in some dictionaries now. Uh, it literally translates in Martian as to drink, but also as to hate, to love, and various other things. Basically, it means to understand, but not just to understand it at like a surface level, but rather to understand a concept or a person or a thing in a sort of pervasive and holistic sense, such that in some way you are now part of it and it's part of you. So Smith is always trying to grok things, to understand them on this deep and sort of molecular level. And much of the book is him trying not only to be able to recite, you know, Earth law, but to really grok it and understand how people behave. The second term is water brother. Um, water is apparently pretty scarce on Mars, and so there's a sort of a ceremony that Martians can go through where they become very, very close, sort of blood brothers and also married at the same time, basically. And that's called Ooh, being whoop. a water brother. It's also called being Alabaman, my friend. <laughs> Early on, um, this nurse and Smith sort of become water brothers. She doesn't really realize that's what's going on. And so Smith begins to develop these close friendships, first with this nurse and then also with Jubal Harshaw, Jubal Harshaw's three secretaries, and various other people. This closeness of friendship it becomes very important because Michael Smith doesn't really understand. He has very different mores than everyone else does, so he actually kills a lot of people really quickly and really easily without realizing it's a big deal because death for Martians isn't a big deal. They have pretty coherent and clear proof of the afterlife, and so discorporating, as it's called, is it's just a thing you do at some point. And in fact, many Martians do it on purpose when they are subjected to severe emotional stress as just a way of moving on, I guess. Which, for the record, as someone who is uh, not great in social circumstances, is really, really appealing <laughs> in a lot of ways. 
the notion that if I could be in an awkward conversation and then just just die on the spot to get away from it is in some ways very appealing. At the very least, go um, into like a coma, right? A coma that's so convincing yeah. <laughs> people think you're dead and leave you uh, alone be, be, forever. Be careful with that one because Smith has his withdrawals that are very different from discorporation. So there's, right. there's yeah. Yeah. several several means of coping with a wide array of situations. But anyway, to move to move forward, Smith uh, eventually develops some understanding of how human society works and um, in becoming close with his water brothers eventually does end up engaging in a sexual relationship with either, well, it's not actually Jill originally, it's one of Jubal Harshaw's three beautiful secretaries, which sort of changes his whole philosophy and he begins to understand that sex between uh, men and women is one of the great things that humans have to offer, that Martians don't do this, their gender divide is very different, they go through kind of a larval process such that all adult Martians are are male and all the larval ones are female. Is that right? I think mm. so. Yeah, yeah, that's, right. that, that, that's true, but barely relevant. M- yeah, m- more, more relevant is his description that mating between Martians is about as romantic as intravenous feeding. Yeah, it's not a, <laughs> it's it's not a thing in this way. And so, with his armed with his tremendous memory, his superpowers, and his love and understanding of the importance of sex, he goes about trying to reshape basically human society. He goes around he becomes a carnival act and then he founds he joins the army for three weeks which ends badly (laughs) he does various little adventures much of what happens off stage and then he founds a it's a church but not a religion is how they describe it um where he teaches people how to speak martian which also correspondingly means giving them these basically superpowers and uh seeks to and lives in kind of a free love uh compound i guess you could call it commune yeah Yeah. with uh most of the important characters in the novel at some point or another end up living in this kind of society where they're all kind of sharing each other's spouses and having a good time and being ridiculously smart and able to move things with their minds and then at the end of it um after he's caused such a stir that many of the local religious organizations and other societies have come to hate him he deliberately goes out and gets himself martyred um as he's confronted with a angry mob that wants to, they've already burned down his church and they want to kill him for preaching basically this, this truth about how the world should work, sort of a pantheist um, free love notion of, of society, which we'll talk more in more detail, but I've already talked too long because it's kind of a hard book to wrap your head around. So yeah, he gets martyred at the end, but he doesn't really seem to care about that. Like we actually see him in the afterlife at the last scene. Um, and most of his followers are like, yep, he's dead now, but that happens to all of us. That's not a huge deal. Um, well, and more he's, still, he's not really not dead. dead. He's yeah, yeah, exactly. He's not meaningfully dead at all. He's, his physical form is no longer animate. Um, a lot of other things happen. We get more than one scene where we see actual angels talking to each other, people who have died or discorporated, I guess, in the narrative are now arguing with each other about what Michael's doing on Earth. He might literally be the Archangel Michael. Um, there's a lot going on in this book, which we'll talk about in more detail as we get to it. Does that catch most of the salient points? Uh, that was harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I think that catches everything that's important for criticism. I think it kind of undersells the first half of the book because the first half of it is actually a fairly, like, middling to decent mystery thriller sort of thing where they're figuring out we have this man from another planet and there's this whole legal issue of he might try to be the king of Mars. Well, what will that do to the Martians? And what about this tremendous fortune that he's done? Like, dr- dramatically speaking, it, it actually reads more like a book than the rest of the book. Um, yeah. And I, you know, as, as I summarized at one point before we started recording this, I, I feel like the first half of the book is the 
the book that gives you an excuse to read the second half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, I do think so. Um, hopefully, with enough grounding details, which I want to, we want to, so that the book is huge in the sense that um, it's sort of a free for all as far as the asides that Jubal, Jubal, how are we saying his name? Are we saying Jubal. his name Jubal? I think it's Jubal. Jubal. Um, I will definitely try and say it that way every time, but who knows? Um, so no, I think so. Like so, I, I part of I think the the unwieldiness of this book is that um, which we'll get into. He takes he takes at least a paragraph or two, especially in this unabridged version, to kind of like mention anything that might be meaningful in a human life, right? Like whether it's military or religion or anything else. And so it's this big smorgasbord of ideas, or at least this playfulness with ideas that I think uh, you know it's I don't know it's 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 hard to necessarily pick apart. But before we get into all that fun and how serious he is or not, there are two things I think I feel like we will kind of ground our discussion. The first is. It is unbelievable that we have found a second radio grade voice to pair with my voice, and I find it, <laughs> I find it insulting, <laughs> and I I find it degrading, and I just next time like I'm gonna find a different co-host who has a higher voice than mine. Um, the second thing that's important, but not quite as important. Okay, that's bad. It's just as important. Bill, let's cut that part. <laughs> the second, <laughs> the second thing, which is actually super important is this book, like so many books, especially I would say sci-fi books from the 60s and 50s and so forth, um, a lot of its content has sort of some socio-political elements that are far past their expiration date as far as like what we consider um, maybe appropriate or uh, moral or whatnot. And so this book is often, if you mention it, uh, the first thing people react to is sort of a couple of... Um, consistent ways it treats women and even a couple of actually almost every review I read quoted one line that Jillian Boardman Jill will call her um, she says at one point you know something about how most women who are raped you know it's partly their own fault or whatever um, it's nine, even harsher nine, than nine, than nine out of every ten times yeah is, is exactly yeah it's a pretty and it. so I mean it's it's a it's an explosive enough line that like again every review that I found that was from a fairly recent time mentioned quotes that line and so I kind of wanted to just talk about like um, the maybe the value of reading a book whose various parts have kind of, um, again, yeah, gone past their due date. And maybe why this book in particular, like, are there things it's doing that are still worth discussing for, you know, this podcast is usually like an hour and a half, two hours. Are there things that worth discussing besides sort of its rank sexism? Um, and, you know, some of the stuff that's, yeah, that Bill covered and that I would, so, yeah, that's a question for both of you guys, what you think, like, is the value of this book despite that? Or can we talk about it despite that? So I think with any book beyond a certain age, it's sort of the inherent background radiation. It's not an excuse for the contents, and it does sort of neatly parcel off portions of the book that you can just write out with just reflexively that you don't have to say, well, can I hem and haw over this and really make it okay? Like, there, I don't think there is any defending it, and that's kind of what makes it not interesting to talk about those passages in particular. Um, from a cultural, historical, and Heinlein's biographical context, 
Um, this book is right at the beginning of when uh, he's switching from doing juvenile literature to something for the mainstream adult audience. Um, and I don't want to say that that means that there are teething problems, but I do think there are at least a few scenes where his habits of doing things meant to titillate adolescent males uh, still lingers, even if by accident. Um, but the book also came out in 1961 at, you know, sort of the, the dawn of the sexual revolution when, you know, we've we've had bits of what we would call today with a capital F feminism, but maybe not the same sort of widespread familiarity or nuance that uh, we would expect most people today to have around things. So it, in, in a lot of ways, Stranger is sort of a transitional fossil from the old sexual order to the new, where you have all of these, you know, un ungainly feathers and hairs that haven't really totally worked themselves into functional appendages. Um, so we're, we're, we're halfway between the, the, the old and the new so that he's, he's got this ethos of challenging, um, the, the sexual hierarchy and, and cultural mores of how we conduct ourselves that hypothetically he gives lip service to, you know, independence and, um, you know, self-confidence for, for women that he just completely takes away with the other hand when he starts talking about how naughty pictures are a goodness. And gee, I'm glad that my water brothers can see me stripping through their eyes. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's like he, he gets the, the principal right and then just nosedives impossibly hard on the execution. And in, in later books, he's better about it, not necessarily great over a certain amount of time you you get kind of a sameness in a lot of Heinlein figures probably the most prominent like female figure I can think of is actually from a book that I haven't read called Friday um, where the the protagonist is a woman and about halfway through the book is the first time that you there's any mention that she's uh, black and Heinlein has this sort of transitional notion of dealing with um, you know, minority or repressed groups where he believes in the equality of all people that still fundamentally boils down to, well, at heart, everybody's white, right? <laughs> yeah, um, right. Or, well, and I think similarly, we all want to have like a traditional male relationship to sex, right? Like we're all the mm -hmm. same in that we all view sex how I view sex. Right. It, it's it's funny because he's he simultaneously very well aware of the cultural foundation of almost all of those positions and attitudes while also unironically clinging to the things that he believes to be true. And it, like one of the, one of the best passages that sets up the weirdness of that tension is when uh, he's talking about Dr. Mahmood. Cause there, there's that brief section where he switches the narrative from Jubal to Mahmood where they're, sort of each gently looking down their noses at each other's attitudes toward religion and God. And you, you get the impression that Heinlein understands that these things are human artifacts. They are malleable historical things that 
shape and channel our action, and there's nothing inherent to them that requires us to adopt them. So it's, you know, arbitrary and territorial to just pick a line and say, this is where I am, but he can't help but do that any time that he's trying to discourse on, you know, a, a vision of how things could be. I actually think Dr. Mahmood is one of the sort of weirdest parts of the book in terms of this tension. Uh, so Dr. Mahmood is one of the first humans that Smith becomes friends with, maybe the first one he really becomes friends with. He's the linguist who's on the second manned mission to Mars. He's a, he's a Muslim. He's also an alcoholic, which the book understands is kind of a, you know, his attention. And he's one of the first people to really learn Martian and to try to teach Smith how to speak English, which is hard because their languages don't map onto each other at all. And one thing, everyone calls Dr. Mahmood stinky. And there's no explanation, I think, literally anywhere in the book as to what that's about. It's just his nickname he gets at some point, which doesn't necessarily have to be problematic, but is odd. That is, there's this noodle incident that we refer to the only really Islamic person as stinky. I think that's weird. Um, but more to the point, um, like Jared is saying, he has these moments when we hear from his perspective, and he's still, Heinlein's trying to write from the perspective of somebody with sort of a... I guess a conservative, quasi-conservative Muslim position. And I don't know if he does it very convincingly to the point where it ends up kind of being, look, we're all humans, even this exotic man from the East. He is also a human, <laughs> which I think is kind of odd. Um, yeah, well, no, I, 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 I agree with that. I do think what's, I mean, what you're hitting on is, of course, like my, I don't know, uh, I'm losing words, but like, yeah, the horse that I continually beat to death, uh, when, when, in which I'm wary of, but I'm always curious in like how far you can push like your ability to like differentiate between like technique or style or form however you want to group you know the how of something is made versus the what the something is talking about and so like you talk about this switch from you know jubal to um to stinky which is mostly how i remember him which is terrible i think it's because he drinks too much is why they do it but it, it was i assume that's what yeah it but no it was it did stick out that yeah anyway but um uh, I actually, it reminded me of all things, this is a crazy thing to be reminded of, but it reminded me of this passage in Howard's End when you meet these sort of, you know, the, the two characters in Howard's End who are the main protagonists are these sisters who are very kind of bourgeois and educated and so forth. They meet this kind of, you know, working class guy and they have some sort of like not great thoughts about him and then the perspective shifts and he also thinks that they're worthless. You know what I mean? So it's a weird way which like maybe it still kind of teases out to not the best thesis, but like narratively it, it does it does kind of shift the authority, right? And so, I don't know, like, I, and I find it interesting as a move, period. It's not like, you know, the most amazing move ever. But I find it interesting as a move, and I also, I, I do think that most of the times he can, uh, Highland destabilizes whatever he's putting forward. So, like, in a pre-conversation, you know, Jared, you mentioned, I, I said, you know, this book uh, was sort of offensive when it came out, and you mentioned, yeah, for, for different reasons that it might be offensive now. And yet I think a lot of the way he's written it continues to like maybe pull you along despite how it offended you in 61 or how it might offend you now and a lot of that depends on just like the techniques or however you want to call it and i i don't know i, I find that like i can get through some of the rougher patches partly because he does these huge zoom outs which is like hey um the martians are going to kill us in thirteen thousand years like none of this matters or hey there are actual angels in eternity well and it's and it's listed with the same significance as a you know basically a you know celebrity losing yes. their dog or joining a nunnery for for three days like it's you you have these things of just radically different scale and significance that are presented equivocally 
Like there's there's no differentiation between a pointless tabloid headline, a the literal end of the physical world, and you know everything in between in terms of political terms, the the stock market, somebody winning and losing an Olympic medal. So yeah, so no, yeah, I so I think, and I think you, the other word you use that I really I think is 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 kind of correct is there's you know, the background radiation that you get just from reading these kind of books. And I agree that part of why it can be uninteresting to go on forever is because either you block it out or you don't read the book. Um, and besides maybe some of the narrative stuff, I do think this book, um, I mean, I like it's one of those books that I feel like if you're at all into sci-fi, you're told your whole life to read it. You know, it has this sort of cultural cachet, this inertia even, that maybe is explicable if you were to ask every single person why they recommend it. But in some ways, it sort of just has momentum that's been going for 60 years. And that itself sort of, for me, like, okay, gets my attention. Besides maybe some of the, the personal reasons we've already talked about. Well, and one of the things that I, I think is interesting as a, as a big Heinlein fan is how it compares to the rest of his work, because this is something that he wrote not too long after Starship Troopers, which a lot of people come to now and go, Jesus, this man was a fascist. Right, and it's right. really bizarre to have somebody who wrote this iconic work of, you know, that, that people understand as, you know, this this is where, where power armor first hit the, the, the sci-fi canon as a concept. And we're talking about this gritty military, you know, highly militarized society where you have to join the army to vote. And the, the whole thing is, is based on this, you know, grotesque machismo of combat and violence and, you know, and to have the same guy who wrote this book that gets... Uh, accusations of militaristic fascism to be the exact same guy who then goes to write this cosmic space hippie wonk fest um, <laughs> in, in in close proximity to each other is is really jarring. And so having that c- and compared to where he goes with some of his other books, like I Look at the Moon as a Harsh Mistress, which he wrote, uh, I think it like five... The 1966, I think, is when it was published. That one is a a pretty hard sci-fi story where the moon has been turned into a prison colony, and in a recreation of the American Revolution, the you know moon rebels, and their main way of securing their independence is the shipping system that they use to send mined minerals back to Earth. They just say, "All right, we're going to chuck giant moon rocks at New Delhi instead." Um, but it's, it's all like there, there are pages and pages of orbital mechanics explanations that like, it's, it's a a really convincing setup. Um, and, and that book I really like because it's the impetus to revolution, the challenge of the revolution, and then the actual definition of a revolution where, all right, now we're just back at square one because anytime we set up a government, it's a disaster. Um, but having somebody who can write the, the, the military fascism, the cosmic space hippie, and a pretty decent, you know, hard sci-fi political thriller um, put Stranger in just a, a really peculiar spot. Because if you read just Stranger in a Strange Land and no other Heinlein, you get a completely different vision of who he is and how he approaches things. And I think that's a big part of why um, the, the book is, is best viewed as... Uh, as you had in some of your your preliminary notes, kind of a wrecking ball rather than it's it's not a manifesto, it's a great big nose honk. <laughs> yeah, well, and I do think I mean I think it's always important 
this is you know 101 stuff but it's as much i think he, there are theses in this book that it feels like the author must approve of because of how they're repeated and so forth but I, he goes out of his way to give so many perspectives and like you said to kind of to zoom in and zoom out with such little discretion that I also think he a lot of the stuff it's actually safe to attribute to some stuff in the book, um, which is not to quibble about the radioactivity level of like some of the sexism um, and obviously some of the stuff Jill says. That stuff you can write off or use it to write the book off if you want. I think that's actually probably a totally fine position. Yeah. But but at the same time, I I I think that he's doing enough weird stuff that I I found myself almost against my will kind of ripped through the book especially like you said especially the first half i did find it a lot of he did a lot of really fun stuff and i think at one point bill you mentioned like on a sentence to sentence level he's fun he's a lot of fun i think that's one of the things that i kind of forget about Heinlein. i think there's kind of a a lot of people talk about the the older science fiction authors as being not great like craftsmen of the language which and there's some truth to that i just read a bunch of asimov and like he sometimes frustrates me yeah in foundation <laughs> um Actually, there's also a, there's a the sort of casual sexism thing applies there too. You read if you read Foundation, I Robot, you're in this weird situation where there's all these like incredibly competent women who are important in the story and have advanced degrees and are considered to be you know giants in the field and still end up always doing the dishes. Do you know what I mean? Like there's yeah, really there's weird, some of that here too, right? <laughs> yeah, it happens in it happens in both of them. You know, one of the inventors of the of the engine, I forget the name of it, but the the warp engine Wild basically that allows. That's it. The Lyle Drive <laughs> is a woman, right? Like, and they're all doctor. Many of the women have doctorates and are, by all accounts, supposed to be brilliant. And yet, still, again, always are rele- relegated to this kind of domestic role during the commune. Um, and it happens, like I said, with Asimov too. But Heinlein, for all that, uh, for all the people who have this reputation that the sci-fi authors can't write very well, I forgot Heinlein is a blast. Actually, like he's funny is one of the things that I had forgotten. Yeah, he um, is. He's very funny. Um, he's got good jokes and he's got, I don't know, it's, it, it, he, he's got great descriptions of things. Um, he describes Jubal at one point who he has just so much fun with, for, by the way. I don't know if he literally believes everything Jubal Harshaw says, but he at least sort of wants to, right? Like he has so much fun with all of Harshaw, who's this like 90 year old pop fiction writer who's just sort of a contrarian who lives in the woods by himself, but. By himself with his three beautiful secretaries right. pumping out yeah. a, a constant stream of thoughtless, effortless money. Yeah. Well, I also love, I love when he's like, he's, he's both a doctor. I, mean, I think we mentioned, but he's a doctor and a lawyer. That enough, I feel like, is satire. But also, he gets so many speaking moments. Like, it's this weird tension of, here's a ridiculous character, but also the smartest character. Well, and he's also not afraid to like jubal not not heinlein jubal has a lot of moments of self-awareness and even if some of it is unconvincing there's at least the the effort to to say you know i'm a parochial old coot i've got these canalized habits i've been damaged by my social upbringing and i've made a lot of mistakes and i own up to every single one of them um yeah, it, it, he, he, he's such a compelling character. I think one thing that's really easy to do to uh, mistakenly going through this, if you only have, you know, very little background to all of this, is to kind of read Jubal as the, the, the self-insert fanfic guy. Um, the sort of this idealized, perfect human who, you know, owns all of his imperfections, can do anything that he wants to, you know, always manages to fail forward um, with, you know, 
perfect detachment while also being the, um, you know, depraved connoisseur. Uh, it, it, he, he's, he's a, a, a deliberately jarring pile of contradictions that you reading him, you insist, you, you grok that he makes sense. He is entirely self-contained and consistent in all of his paradoxes. <laughs> When I, one of the first things he says is that he, his was not a small mind bothered by logic and consistency, which is just, I think, a very good, you know, <laughs> yeah. description of Harshaw. I want to talk a bit about the first half of the book just real quick, which I, I really, really enjoyed in particular the first half of this book, which is the sort of the plot part, if you will. There is plot in the second half, but it's a lot more, you know, the plot is he goes off, finds himself, founds a religion, dies, right? I mean, that's not, that's basically what happens. <laughs> it's the classic, the first yeah, half, it's the classic whereas, plot, the second half, to be fair. <laughs> the first half has a lot more sort of what you would think of as a sci-fi plot. And the way Harsha handles everything is just hilarious. It ends up with, he has two problems he has to solve. The one is that, for some reason, because of what's called the Larkin decision, is that, or Larkin, yep. Larkin Lark, right? Larkin, Larkin decision. Yeah, the, the, uh, which was a decision about, well, whatever humans basically are on an interplanetary body, uh, own that body, which has not actually butted up against an interplanetary body that has other beings on it, such that maybe under one strict reading of that, Michael Smith, as the only person who is only human who has lived on Mars for 25 years, is sort of the sole king and sovereign of all of Mars. Um, uh, Harsha has to deal with that problem because he's pretty sure Smith doesn't even know what that means and would be offended by the concept if he did. And certainly the Martians wouldn't be thrilled about that. <laughs> um, also the fact that because Smith is sort of the, he's a child of three people functionally because he's the like legal child of his mother and the w man who was married to his mother, but also function. Of course, he's actually a, a, a bastard. He's, his father is not the man who was married to his mother, but some other guy. And so depending on how you slice it, he's legally the heir to all three of them who were all brilliant scientists and therefore had bajillions of dollars. So he has a lot of money and a lot of political power and Harsha needs to figure out a way to sort of make sure neither of those result in him getting killed. And the way he solves that is by putting basically the president of the United Nations equivalent as his personal lawyer in charge of his funds and <laughs> forcing the issue on the Larkin decision such that it's clear that he doesn't own anything and is of no political significance at all. And the way he does that is by calling this big public press conference where theoretically they're negotiating everything, insisting they play uh, a national anthem for Mars that there isn't one. So they have to just, I think, grab. He doesn't, it's not literally Holst because they call it the 10 planet right, symphony, but, but it's, it's clearly yeah. what it's got to yeah. be. Uh, and make up a, like with paint and a bed sheet, basically a flag. And then also end up saying, by the way, he's of no importance. This is just to show the people who actually own Mars, which is the Martians, that you really care about them. It's just a, just a riotously good time. That whole thing is he is just bludgeoning his way through bureaucracy, refusing to deal with any of the petty niceties to ensure that his client doesn't get murdered, which, you know, I enjoyed a lot, and I'm a lawyer, so I'm always about that kind of heroic lawyer story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as much of a d dim view of the book you know, regularly makes of lawyers, it's always out of the mouth of the lawyer who's, you know, taking all of the, the sort of extracurricular tricks that he can to ensure the optimal legal outcome. <laughs> Well, and uh, the other part that the book does, you know, because it jumps around so many types of people, but you have, right, so we've talked about Mike Smith and, and Jubal. Um, you get, I mean, a lot of the first part of the book is Jill and this newspaper guy 
Ben Caxton, right? That's a, a bunch of it. And Ben Caxton's disappearance is partly what gives the whole um, the whole plot stakes, right? That you don't know if he's dead or not dead, but people are playing for keeps, yada, yada. And what's kind of so fun about it, besides all the big meeting stuff you talked about, Bill, part of the resolution is not only Mike Smith displaying his powers and, like, you know, disappearing a bunch of cop cars, but actually Jubal has to call essentially the president's wife's astrologer, right? Or, yeah. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. that's how they resolve this, like, international, interplanetary fiasco where, like, a good friend is missing, maybe dead. They call, you know, <laughs> the least likely well, person who's herself quite funny. And how wild is it that the, there's this tremendous maneuver of real politic in the middle of things? It's all of our social structures are absolute illusions. I'm going to punch to the heart of the matter through a personal connection to resolve this. And what, what kind of like narrative dissonance does that have against I can solve problems by knowing the right people and embracing the fiction of reality? And then the second half of the book is, by the way, I know the perfect truth of the entire universe that I can <laughs> carve my way through reality with my mind once I learn the proper language of the way things truly are. Like, it, it's just a, a a baffling combination of things that that works so well in setting up, like, narrative and thematic tensions in a way that should be messy but feels really good to go through. I totally agree. Um, I do think that that does, I feel like unless you guys want to talk more about the first half, I do, I don't want to zoom out too much, but so we, you kind of talked about the nose honking element of the book that it's only so serious as maybe you yourself, the reader are in some ways, right? Like I think it'd be really easy um, to do what I did with Vanity Fair when I was like 17 and think that it was pretty straightforward um, and realizing later, years later that maybe Becky is not this. I mean, anyway, different story. Um, but I so <laughs> as far as all the nose honking and wrecking balls of the book, I can't help but think that based on the amount of pedantry that's forced in through um, initially Bing Caxton and then mostly through Jubal and even through some of the other characters that these certain themes are repeated over and over. And even the sort of nonsense themes or the nonsense phrases of the, of Mike Smith's, you know, church leader, like thou art God, right? That's throughout the book. Grok, of course, is something maybe spiritual as well as, you know, sort of just a uh, literal understanding. And so I, I just, I think there are some like some actual theses that he is putting forward despite all of the jokiness and I guess the first question is, um, do you guys agree with that? And what what do you think they would be? Or maybe, no, why is that not the case? Well, Jared, you'll have to remind me. Didn't Heinlein have kind of an unorthodox marriage and stuff? Or am I making that up? Um, well, so he, he had his his most significant commitment was to his wife, Virginia, Ginny. Um, that, she was his third wife. Um, his first wife he was married to for a year. It just didn't work out. His second wife he was married to for about 12 years and they got divorced because they just kind of fell apart and she developed um, a lot of problems with alcoholism. Um, his third wife, Virginia, Ginny, the one who wrote the introduction and is the only one remembered as Heinlein's wife, um, who was a... Uh, a chemical engineer of all things. I can't remember if she had a doctoral degree or very, very close to it, but just this brilliant, super competent um, woman, the the sort of archetype for a lot of uh, his, his own characters in his books. Um, they, 
he was not actually very clear on the particulars of his private life. Um, he was very militant about keeping his private life private. So there's a lot of um, rumor about how things were conducted because it, throughout the entirety of Heinlein's writing, he's, he's pretty... He, there are He uses again and again themes of, um, you know sexual rules being, you know, m mere cultural restrictions that have to be both, you know, viewed as sacred and irrelevant simultaneously. Um, and I, you know, I don't think anybody ever questions his um, commitment to Virginia, but exactly whether that involved any, any more sexually adventurous escapades um, or, or the rest of it is Difficult to substantiate, but very plausible. <laughs> well, because it does, I mean, I mean, and, and without, you know, playing the detective too much to say, like, you know, his life was this way, so his beliefs are this way. One of the lines that I highlighted, which I think is, I, I, I think really is meant to be somewhat serious. Of course, it's not really necessarily advocating anything, but he talks about that the ideal human ethic must be founded on ideal sexual behavior. And so he set out in this book, according to like letters to publishers and everything else, he set out to kind of go after the two sacred cows that he, as he saw it, right, religion and sex. He wanted to sort of upend everyone's, you know, views on it or whatnot. And yet also like this is, is itself a positive idea that like ideal human ethic must be found on ideal sexual behavior and our current behavior of monogamy or whatever it was in 1961 is insufficient. Like that feels like a real thesis that for, for however much he's sort of just like rubbing it in our faces and in a gleeful sort of, you know, come along and rub with me way. It feels also like a real idea that he wants us to consider. Is that, I mean, is that giving him too much credit or giving him too little credit? Maybe. <laughs> I, I think that's fair. And he, but he presents the, the two executions of that thesis in Mike and Jubal. So Jubal is, you know, I don't know if he's a, a widower or a divorcee, but it at least at some point says that he put four, four girls through college and was, was married. Um, and despite, you know, the appearances of keeping his, his, you know, three beautiful secretaries around, um, you know, is, you know, someone with an understanding and appreciation for sexuality, but not somebody who's like really eager to embrace that. Whereas the, the Mike figure where you, you know, transcend your humanity through, you know, aggressive sexual union with, well, and any, any of your water brethren, um, you know, be it one at a time or en masse or, or whatever. Um, he, th those are both presented as viable implementations of the same basic rejection of monogamy. Because you know, Mike always says, you know, Ju Jubal grocks even without speaking Martian. And, you know, they're, they're, they're both basically recognized as valid ways to live according to whatever the actual underlying truth of things is. Well, but Jubal doesn't do that at the end of the book, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but one of the plot points towards the end is Jubal sort of overcomes his, or it is overcome, I guess, his sort of <laughs> celibacy, right? Like the gal who's got the, Don, who's had a huge crush on him for a long time, 
you know, he finally goes to one of their compounds. He's actually not been going to them. Um, and she sneaks into his bedroom and basically guilts him into having sex with her. <laughs> it's a really odd scene. Well, just, and, and after that, he doesn't, I guess, on stage, you know, he, he's not mentioned as explicitly sleeping with anyone again, but he does at least seem much more open to the concept. And not even maybe just with Dawn either. You know, it, it may, maybe he'll maybe he won't sleep alone, he says at one point. Um, so I don't know. It is. I think there is a little bit of a, of a, a tension there because it's almost like he's perceived as being as the reason he doesn't want to live Mike's sort of free love life is because he's almost like scared of it or it's like a personal hesitance, which isn't necessarily. I mean, it is like I said, it is overcome by the end of the book, and he seems more or less happy that that's what's happened. So I think it's at least more complicated maybe than that. They're both equally valid ways of living but i'll see the floor back to what you had to say i i think that they they come to the same conclusion from different paths because i i I feel like the the underlying assertion between either one of them is that sex is good and worthwhile but needs to be done sincerely and given uh it's it's full weight because jubal's reluctance is you know, partly that he's 90-something years old, maybe. Um, but as with a lot of things with Jubal, that may just be him making up excuses and grandstanding and pretending. Um, but I, I I, read a lot of that reluctance as, you know, a, a rare moment of, of actual weakness for him, where he's he's not sure that he can do it properly. Um, with the the full understanding and respect that the the act deserves, because with Mike and the rest of the Church of All Worlds, you know they're all young, flexible, open minded, and you know willing to commit to more more readily because they don't have the weight of perspective on them as much. It's a matter of acknowledging what your own capabilities are to treat things with the full depth and seriousness that they deserve. And you can, it is not incompatible to wholly love multiple people. It's just rare and unpracticed. And the, 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 the aspect of jealousy that he harps on a lot is the, uh, a key motivating factor behind a lot of other human, you know, malignance. (laughs) I did think, I mean, I really did think it was interesting that Jubal mentions uh, more than once how he, you know, basically has an evangelical Christian background and that, you know, his parents wanted him to be a preacher or whatever and that he just missed being one. That's one of the jokes that he, like, he talks so much and it's with sort of the fervor of a preacher. And I, I mean, so as someone, you know, who grew up in the evangelical, you know, kind of community and uh, definitely, like, I definitely grew, I was adjacent, if not in the uh, kind of the purity culture community, which is, you know, even more kind of interesting we'll say um but i i i actually i i thought that was one of the more interesting insights of the book in some ways is that uh the obsession with sex as a founding sort of sexual behavior as a sort of a founding cornerstone of any human ethic that is that is exactly i would say the problem but also the point of so much of purity culture in the evangelical communities um, and I thought it was sort of both interesting and hysterical that he would so accurately say that because I think some of his vision has maybe some of the same problems as far as like if the emphasis is so intense, at some point you have to like define a norm that 
I, I, becomes constrictive, right? Like, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't, from this book, I, I don't get the sense that monogamy is as plausible or, you know, celebrated a, a choice. Which, again, this book is, like, silly, and so I don't want to take it too seriously, but, like, I, I think that's definitely a conclusion this book would want us to take away, that monogamy is sort of our cultural bias, and we, you know, if not should upend it, we should be questioning it. Well, I also think one of the things that's interested me about the book that I thought was kind of kind of odd and funny, if you were going to write a book in 2019 about how we all ought to just sort of engage in ethical but nevertheless very freewheeling right. sex Consexual, with we want. Yeah. yeah, and he's very clear that this isn't, you know, that these are all, that you can only have sex with your water brothers, and it's not because it's a like a immoral act to do otherwise is because you won't psychically you're psychically impotent i think mike says at one point like yep. you have to have this kind of close connection with someone before you would even be interested again it's so even having sex with them. so it's so interesting yeah i know right it's so wild <laughs> it's so uh, weird. You, you, you know so he, this isn't like going around on street corners and picking people up right this is this is a different kind of free love than uh than i think we might imagine at first glance but if you were going to write that book in 2019 there would be gay people in it at some point right i right. mean like there would be a mm-hmm. sort of a it, it, whereas this book is at best dismissive of homosexuality in a way that I think is is really funny and kind of odd and never looked at square in the eyes. Um, and I don't know what that's about, right? Like, at one point, Jill, and again, I don't know if Jill necessarily is the word of God in the book, but says that maybe even Mike would have sensed a wrongness in gay people, right? Right. Which is a bit, a bit ominous, given that many things he thinks are wrong and I get annihilated, which is not necessarily to say that he would do that, but I... <laughs> Well, but even even that little bit, you know, both again from from Jill's perspective, you know, later on after she she grocks naughty pictures, she's suddenly disturbed that she might have lesbian inclinations, and so there's the sort of typical you know demonization of masculine homosexuality while looking less harshly on the on the the lesbian sexuality. Um, that it, it, it makes it really, really hard to, to square with the rest of the narrative and even with its itself. Like I'm I, I don't remember it being that detailed and explicit in the the unedited version, but I haven't had a chance to go review those side by side. Well and doesn't I mean so what's so what's so interesting about the book though is that I mean he bumps up against so many things like Bill, you kind of almost were alluding to that, like that we would almost recognize in a different form. Right. So like if you, if you kind of were to squint both your eyes and look at a great distance, a lot of the stuff, of course, I mean, not even squint that hard. It's what we called sex positive, right? That this is sort of a way to celebrate, you know, things we used to repress or whatever. Um, and even, and even with the homosexuality issue, which, you know, he totally, you know, totally kind of misses on, um, from our perspective, especially, I, I, I think Ben gets kissed by men. He and Jubal are talking, and Jubal makes a you know a note about it, and Ben says, "Yeah, that happened," but then I put a stop to it. And so it's it's kind of this weird thing where like he, Highland's almost like bumping up against even that being part of the commune, which is okay, but he just won't go there. It seems like um, for his own you know for the book's own biases or otherwise. But I just I, I think it's that's part of why the book maybe is so astounding. Still, is that. Um, I find it you know, obviously kind of shocking and upsetting, and, and for some, some of what it says <laughs> um, from the you know the male porn fantasy view <laughs> that it tends to have, and yet also like it seems to bump up against the most progressive values if it was like turned forty five degrees. Does that make sense? 
It does. I also do think it's funny that learning to speak Martian and think properly causes you to lose 20 pounds and your hair to oh, get longer. Gosh, and your. <laughs> there is definitely a, wouldn't it be great to live in a world where you could have sex with any woman you want? And also, I guess, <laughs> I guess they could also have sex. And I guess that has to happen. So that's fine. You well, know, but it's. <laughs> but, but how, how different is that from any other, you know, moralistic diet fad or something like that? It's the, oh, the moment all, that we yeah. learn to, to live rightly, we can, you know, it's, exactly. it's not just this. It's everything else. And, you know, the, you, you, there's some question coming to this book. Is, is, is this a satire that gets that? Or does it not buy its own message and really think that there's something behind this? Like, the, there, there's a lot of people who've put, um, you know, time into comparing this book against, I, I forget what the linguistic movement was, but there was so, some kind of new, newfangled, um, you know, linguistic theory, like, I think it was structural semantics is the, the, the name of, of whatever it was, um, that, um, it was, it was kind of this like positivistic, um, approach to epistemology that, uh, Heinlein was, was really big into. And so the, the notion that, um, you know, truth is expressible in language, um, in, in a very explicit, like, correlative, strong map onto reality sort of way, um, kind of underlies a lot of how Mike presents things and maybe the way Heinlein thought about stuff. It's, it's, I, I think that you, you need a, a really deep dive to make a, a very confident assertion on that front. Because, like, coming to this book now, because this is my, my fourth time through the book, you know, I read it the first time when I was, God, 15 or something like that. Um, and I think hitting that, you know, the book hits you differently at that point in your life, because this is, you know, a grandmaster of science fiction who's standing up and saying, aha, the emperor has no clothes and I can prove it. And, you know, at, for people at that point in life, that can be a valuable thing to, to really be shown that people can be taken seriously by not taking things seriously is an important way to approach things. Um, but since then, you know, I've also gotten a philosophy degree, gotten married, I have three children, and I've just got a whole bunch of different perspective now. So things really trouble me with the sort of positivist implications of speaking Martian. You know, I, I don't think that truth and language have that kind of relationship that this wants to assert. And there's the the other thing that I, re I I still have a hard time nailing this down is the sort of implicit dualism of the book. You know, there, there's a, a line in there the, about how um, self-awareness has to be more than a bunch of amino acids bumping into each other, which has a, a really good visceral appeal. Um, but there's you know not a lot beyond that aside from okay, yeah, we can discorporate and we've got angels that are, at, at least I, if I'm reading it correctly, taking over human bodies to do a few actions in the middle of things. Um, and so you, you have this, like, radically explicit dualism of, you know, Mike's consciousness and awareness floating outside of the pool to look at the police right. cars and then, you know, abandoning the body wholesale to continue on with the rest of, of what we do afterwards. Um you know, and 
those are are great as again wrecking balls to you know they th- th- this this book asks just about every question there is in philosophy and you can't do that in 600 pages and tell a story <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true well and I, I think also one of the interesting things is that you know almost from our perspective some of the what I would call like almost transcendental elements, those are almost conservative, right? That like he, it is sort of this blunt rejection of materialism. I mean, like the, the consciousness is not just sort of an illusion of neuroscience, that it is something which will survive the body. It's, it's, it's a weirdly conservative position as far as the scientific community would be concerned. Um, I do, I do want to come back to one more thing, though, before. I think some of the philosophy stuff we should hit on. But I was almost going to say when you were talking that I feel like part of how you take this book is almost if you is almost to the extent that you think he is satirizing his main characters as part of everything they are themselves deconstructing. Which you basically said, but like the extent to which you think he is satirizing Mike and Jubal and everyone else that right they have a, a snake as a nursemaid for the children in this new age commune. Um, I mean that that can't be serious, right? That's not an answer to anything. And so to the extent that you think he's satirizing everyone because it, it really is a you know sort of a, an equal opportunity dismantling. Um, I, I'm not sure I buy that that's what's happening, but I think there are moments when I think that's what his better impulses were to do. Um, it's a very charitable read of the book, if if nothing. It else. would like, be, I, yeah. I I, I, I think you can you can all you, you can question whether it succeeds at doing that, but the the charitable read I think is to take it that way. I, I do think, and Joel, this is I think actually your idea. I'm stealing from your notes, so you know, haha, get it I'm out there, pilfering things from you. <laughs> but uh, you know, you can't do this, right? This you can't you can't live as part of the Church of All Worlds because it's founded on this Martian language that gives you superpowers, right? That's why you can do this. Like, you, the people there can, because of that, are more or less immune to physical harm unless they choose to be, you know, they don't, women don't have to take oral contraceptives if they have these superpowers because they can just choose when they want to conceive or not. There's all these sort of practical as you know, they can have all the money you want because you can literally win the gambling thing by forcing the slot machine to do what you want or predict the stock market or do all these other things because you're Dr. Manhattan and now, And yet right? somehow they still think money is beautiful and useful. That, that's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's yeah, a yeah, we gotta talk about that. that. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but, you know, the point is, in order to join the Church of All Worlds and live this sort of life, if it's actually what Heinlein thinks we should live, live you have to have superpowers, right? And we, we can't do that. Like, that's not a real thing. You can't do that. You can't learn Martian and be able to levitate people and discorporate at will. So I, I think that maybe indicates that clearly, I don't, I don't know if you can take literally everything Mike says as Heinlein's, like, thesis for how it works, right? So I don't know if it's a literally as satirical of itself, maybe as Joel says, is, is not as, as positing, I guess. But I think it's got to have at least a little bit of that going on. I think it, right? yeah, this I think it does. Yeah. <laughs> Because this, this this can't be a, a real thesis for how to live because it's you can't do that. It would be the dispossessed otherwise, right? Which takes a futuristic interplanetary you know world scenario of self determined anarchists and capitalists, and it would play it out in more, if not realistic terms, as far as like you know the spaceships and so forth, kind of realistic human terms. The dispossessed by Ursula Le, Le Guin, sorry, right? Which kind of follows one guy through his journey through different economic systems, and while it's fantastical and exaggerated, it's all done on a very huge human level at no point does someone learn how to talk to snakes um yeah well i mean Le, Le Guin was was the child of anthropologists like her her entire right. upbringing <laughs> was in 
learning how to make those really small observations about how larger social systems are executed through like actual human instantiation. Like if, if you want to, if you want somebody to take seriously, like the dispossessed is far and away a better book. And I, right. Exactly. Yeah. Basically that's what I'm, yeah. Which I think is a key to the, which I think is a key to enjoying this book though. Right. Is that if you try and fit it into a certain box, I mean, maybe it's already imploding for other reasons. Um, but if you fit into the wrong box, it's never going to work, um, which is, which I think it's, it, it's easy to do, though, only because there is a certain self-seriousness to how many speeches the book gives Jubal in particular, right? That it, I think the charitable reading is where I, I, I landed closer to that as I finished the book. But I, what, what keeps me from being there completely is that it just gives, especially this version, which is the unabridged. So who knows if the other one reads differently? for me um but it gives so much real estate to sort of these guys you know pontificating in a way that at least seems urgent because it's repeated so often um i also i do think it's significant that jubal actually never learns to speak martian or to levitate things with his mind right and that's true the, jared mentioned this yeah, earlier that's that he, true he grocks without speaking a language such that there, there is still i think at least some indication that some of this philosophy maybe is doable by actual human beings but i don't know i do think that it's it's a mess and didn't some guy actually try to start a church yes. that adopted some of these things it, it, and then it, it still like, exists, what the hell are you actually. doing still going <laughs> still going yeah I, I i i don't want to know how how it's doing these days because if if you went off and founded <laughs> oh, the church of all worlds you have clearly missed the point <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, do you guys want? I mean, are there any other like of the so the philosophy we've kind of mentioned that you you actually said, Jared, and you put it very well with the positivist aside that he is interested in these big philosophical questions. He of course talks about um, the sort of Dionysian versus oh, someone said the word for me um, Apollonian. 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 Right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Apollonian. Sort of those kind of conflicts of you know, and I'm going to reduce it to my own by like order and chaos or whatever. Very Nietzschean insertion however niche in it actually is or not but so i was curious if you guys as philosophy majors if you found serious meat in here that was not so much like him advocating so much as him just chewing on and if you know and, and if so like what was there that you wanted to kind of highlight i think his his biggest problem is that he treats philosophical questions like engineering problems um because he he, he takes this approach where if you take Mike seriously, we can resolve questions of truth simply by being sufficiently meticulous. That there are logical deductions that can be made from linguistic axioms that map onto the functional structure of the, the rest of reality. Um, which is a really appealing way to approach things and still had some degree of... Um, you know, philosophical cachet at the time that this book was 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 being written, um, and particularly for someone who, like, you know, with all due respect to Heinlein, you really can only do so many things, and he was a good writer and a naval engineer, and his his mindset, his vision of man as the you know, flexible, competent learner sort of requires that there are concrete things that you can you can pick out in that fashion. Um, and he, you know, if if he fails to pr portray those things convincingly, you know, he's he's not in bad company. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. I think one of the things I found most compelling uh, is Jubal's, like, we get a lot of Jubal's own thought processes, right? As he's sort of, again, having these Socratic dialogues with, like, Ben Caxton or whoever. And I, I actually think that the way he deals with, he's actually surprisingly, for all that he's really loud and obnoxious and has strong opinions about stuff, on a lot of the uh, underlying philosophical or religious questions, I think he shows a pretty good, like, intellectual humility, actually. He's pretty unwilling to come out and say that any one thing is absolutely not what's going on. And I think there's some interesting uh, lessons to be learned in the way he deals with questions, but that's kind of a meta answer that's maybe not terribly satisfying. <laughs> well, in, in some ways, it's 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 one of the oldest positions. So one, one of the things um, that's noteworthy about of a lot of platonic dialogues is that the the goal of the dialogue isn't, or the, the end point of the dialogue isn't necessarily, we have start started from this position and ended at this one, but we've reached um, a position that's called aporia, which is where you are sort of standing befuddled between the, the opposite ends, having, you know, gone through the spectrum and seen what they have to offer, and you are enriched and enlightened without still being able to, like, concretely say, yeah, it's A or B. Um, you know, the, the, the point of the journey is not to arrive. <laughs> um, well, yeah, no, actually, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that a sort of, a, a sort of soft skepticism in a semi-technical sense is definitely the point of the book. The point that, to, to the degree that even he, he uses it casually and not in a technical sense, but of course, Jubal is consistently referred to as a cynic, right? That he just, you can't pin him down to anything. And I, I, if I, yeah, and if there's any kind of philosophical bent that I think um, is is being put forth as opposed to just being chewed on, I definitely think it's a certain um, skepticism. But I, I also, I would, other thing I would add though is there's a certain political, there's a certain political dimension to the book, which um, God help me, I mean, I, I couldn't help but think of Jordan Peterson, who I goodness knows I've tried to avoid in all contexts, you know, of with the internet. Um, but there is a way in which some of the, some, one of the, the lines actually Ben Caxton delivers is sort of, uh, let me find it real quick. Yeah. So one of the lines Ben Caxton delivers is freedom of self and personality, sorry, personal responsibility of self, thou art God. That's sort of the fundamental, uh, theory, but that's actually, that's not maybe as loosey goosey as it sounds, because that's basically what Jordan Peterson, from what I understand, does in one of his books, um, the 12 rules one, which is sort of that the discipline of self, you know, is the way to kind of enact anything, right? That like this certain self-discipline of choosing is the only way to be a, a functioning political creature. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not as, you know, much as I thought was there. And I'm certainly not advocating for Jordan Peterson. I should clarify, <laughs> but I do think, I, I do think he maps onto a certain current dialogue of political self-determination that is, you know, basically the intellectual dark web. So a little bit of biography and commentary there and how this falls elsewhere. Heinlein at, at some point would refer to himself. I can't actually remember if this was a, a self-appellation or something that he just tolerated. Um, was accepted the label of libertarian socialist, not in the sense that it would be used today, but the way that I read that, that I, I take Heinlein basically is that he is um, navigating between two basic assertions. Um, one, the libertarian component that the, the, the self, the individual is responsible for their own choices and um, is an autonomous 
you know, self-determining unit, and the socialist part, which is that we are loaded by our historical position and cultural upbringing with so many, um, you know, social, cultural, linguistic, behavioral tools for navigating um, around that um, we can only be judged you know, on the basis of the awareness of the situation that led to the possibility of who you are. So navigating that, that dichotomy of the sort of atomistic notion of the, you know, self-determined individual and the culturally determined individual, um, is, is a a huge tension to try to resolve. Like, and I, I think that's, um, I mean, that, that's the way that I, I tend to read Heinlein myself, partly because if you look at other protagonists, they are very consistently independent persons. They solve problems using their knowledge and their skills. Um, and a lot of that happens in a very, you know, physical, specific space. Um, and they're, but they're also, you know, adept at navigating social constructs as social constructs and there's a sort of consistent awareness of you know and and a necessary ironic adoption of those positions um you know stranger distorts all of that kind of perspective really really hard because it's explicitly playing with those dichotomies um whereas if you look at something like the moon is a harsh mistress you you have it's primarily told from the perspective of a single individual and you you can kind of feel where each of those things come from, but it tries to, to make it a more lived experience as opposed to like, I'm still not convinced that stranger in a strange land has more than about three characters in it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be, what's three. <laughs> um, I mean, Jubal, Mike are the only ones that I I will definitively assert are characters in the book. Um, Be- Becky VZ is a character. Um, Becky there's, Vizzi no, there's no question. There. Definitely a character. <laughs> yeah, and that's the astrologer. She is hilarious. <laughs> she I, really I, is. I, that was actually maybe my favorite part of. I don't know about that, but one of my favorite parts of the book is the two or three times when she gets a scene and we see her trying to sort out the astrology stuff while also I love that he has a line where she says something like. You know, she has to basically make up an astrological reading to get the prime minister to do something, the president, you know, but she actually does the astrological calculations as she does it. So she seems to exist in this superposition where she knows that she's basically just trying to give advice and also <laughs> still trying to provide an astrological right. basis for it, which I thought was fascinating. <laughs> well, and, and the fact that immediately after that phone call, she calls her stockbroker. Like, yes, what, what a note. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That was really um, good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so th- those are those are the three characters I, I will defend. Um, I'm not sure that Ben Caxton means a thing in the course of the book. Can we swear on the podcast? I don't know what your policy is. We usually bleep it, but it doesn't. It's not. It's not okay, hard and I'll, fast. Which well, we I'll, I'll. Okay. Well, th- th- this is actually significant because I I think that there's something to be said for the comparison between grok and the f word as far as like you you. You, you can parrot it in one sense and use it correctly, but it's it's diversity of definitions and its specificity of execution, despite its breadth, is very analogous. I mean, and not just in like a, a raw physical sense of it's a word that that 
punches and feels good to say. Um, but that, you know, you, 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 in order to fuck, you must grok and vice versa. <laughs> you, know, you know, what's so frustrating about the word grok is that one, it's like an earworm. It's the, and like, you know, a song that just gets into your head that you can't get out. But also that the way that at least I came to like want to use it is sort of, a definition for what the word means or doesn't mean, right? Like it's not totally a defined term that I'd want to use. And yet I sort of grok the word grok. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I, like I'm not that sure. That makes that, a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's like, it's actually one of like, besides it being a perfect, like you said, kind of percussive instantiation of the English language or Martian language into English. Besides its percussive perfection, it it really it really is annoyingly useful to talk about grokking things without necessarily wanting to pin down what you mean by grok or certainly what you mean when you grok anything. But I hadn't thought of I don't know why I hadn't thought of the fact that yeah uh, the F word is also the most elastic word in the English language. And like the the philosopher in me has to to give the side eye to grok because it has these sort of like almost gnostic implications um and i i i and i i can't decide if you should read it as all right we just need to find the right language out of all of them to to definitively map onto reality um you know, because I, I I don't think that that's a thesis that holds as much water um, these days. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my gosh! <laughs> but I, I I also don't don't know how to how to pitch like an ironic grokking because like just have you know understanding that a, a word has you know, literal definitions and subtexts and, you know, cultural maneuvering behind it, you know, it's, it's important to understand and you can use it in that limited sense, but it, it kind of loses its, its significance if you reduce it to that. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I, I will say, um, without necessarily moving us on, I do think you mentioned just reading this book when you were 15 and I think a lot of our discourse has proven this. Um, I, I think maybe as like a heterosexual male, obviously some of the stuff in the book, um, which would have you know offended me when I was fifteen, I also may have you know jumped right past it, being the exact sort of male he was hoping to t- titillate, right? Um, but so with that aside, that you know maybe I have my own blind spots that would enable this reaction. I do think that there's something to be said for basically making a bunch of philosophy fun. Right, that this book uses sort of this ratatat dialogue and this conspiracy with the government and this fun sci-fi superpower escapade, which wasn't as fun as it should have been. That he was a literal carny. What a fun idea! Um, but I think there's something to be said for the fact that he is. I think he is successful, basically, energizing a lot of stale topics by basically pumping in a bunch of sex and action. I mean, it's an old technique, but he does it. Better than most writers of his era, I think. Yeah, like it, you, you, you can understand why every person is concerned with these questions. You know. Yes, you know, and, exactly. You know, and you know, M- M- Mike is basically a slightly updated Mowgli as far as you know a plot structure goes. You know, and and there's there's all kinds of you know literary precedent for you know the, the the lost child being imported from another culture who's there to to give 
you know, a, a real good shakedown to what the rest <laughs> of you have been, have been, you know, hoodwinked into into believing. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, he 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 does really make these questions live really effectively. That's that's part of I, I had mentioned before we um, we got on the podcast about this how I I sometimes get worried about where this book falls relative to. Um, figures like Ayn Rand, because part of her appeal to the same like adolescent audience is it's a a rare case of someone making a like visceral literary case for why certain moral principles matter, because it's very easy to present these questions as abstract or to present them as like you know. Uh, gripping immediate questions and crises that feel more real than the sort of underlying like moral conflict. Um, and th- this does a remarkably good job of presenting characters who care about morals because they affect the real world and vice versa without being either heavy handed or dry um, or, you know, two down in the weeds to make a point. Yeah. The two down in the weeds part is important. I do think weirdly, I, I thought of Ayn Rand when I was reading this for a lot of reasons. One of which is I, I one time heard someone describe her aesthetic as like basically a, um, a golden age of Hollywood aesthetic. Like no one ever drinks water, right? They drink from a goblet with a flower in the middle that's described at length in sort of a brilliant color. And I, I think there's a certain outsized element to what Heinlein does, right? Like Jubal <laughs> is not just some smart old guy. He's a lawyer, doctor, famous writer <laughs> who's basically like, like at the end of the book, he's writing poems that he tells the one of the secretaries to send to the New Yorker. They'll take it. It's morbid, right? Like he's so established. Mm-hmm. He can do the New Yorker. He can do the, you know, the quick and easy buck. And so of course it's satirical, but also there's something very just fun about that level of pulp, you know, glamour almost. Um, glamour more on Ayn Rand's side than here, but... So there's one big question that I had in coming back to the book um, that's... It's it's recurring, re- recurrent in the book more than I remembered it being, um, and I feel like it sort of sits separately from a lot of the questions, and I can't tell how important it is, but there's this... Um, consistent theme of um, eradicating a thing when it's been finished or filled. So the, there are these uh, bombed out Martian cities that have been, or not bombed out, but they've, they've been abandoned. You know, they, they've been so full of experiences that, you know, the, the, the cities, the, the, the political structure um, discorporates, I guess, in the same way as the, the individual and I'm having the hardest time trying to figure out what to make of that, because on the one hand, I look at it as, you know, here is a space that has exhausted all of its conceptual possibilities. You know, it, it is, you know, he uses a lot of terms like in like Martian mathematics, three filled, you know, being th- three to the third or, or whatever, Um you know, it, it's it's a different attitude toward that mathematical concept. Um, and as a like Martian polis, there's there's almost this implication that after you have 
explored a certain aesthetic space almost. Um, it you you've exhausted its possibilities, and then you you abandon it and move on. So you know, Mike does this very explicitly at the end of the book when you know the the church gets firebombed, and he's like, "Well, yeah, that that needed to happen anyway. We were done with it." But that not not in the sense that like we no longer needed it, but in a a, a more profound sense that everything it could do had been done and it needed to be terminated for that reason. And that's, that's kind of a, a recurrent tone that seems separate. Like, I don't, I don't know what the foundation for that is in the rest of it or why I find it so fascinating because to, to some sensibility there, there's this implication that, all right, we're done here. Let's kill everybody. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and there, there, there's a, you know, at, at the very base of that, you know, he always talks about Martian action being very deliberate, planned, intentional, purposeful, um, you know, like they're, they're, you're filling out all of the possibilities of, of things to do. And there's a very clear purpose of being the, why am I here is an intentionable, answerable question, and you get you you get a depiction of Martian attitudes and the the question there, and I don't know because that doesn't really feel like satire. It's not funny, um, and it doesn't to me at least very clearly derive from any of the other assertions in the book. And th there's a certain like mathematical satisfaction to, well, why am I here to explore all the possibilities and see what can be done? Now that that's fulfilled, my work is complete and I can discorporate. And there's something to be said for that in, in like the angel scenes, because they, they, they talk about it in this like construction yard fashion. You know, the, the, the great cosmic work of the universe is just building out another wing of space. Um, and, Maybe that's an assertion, but you know, I've I've been trying for a long time to tie those together into some into a, a coherent narrative, and I don't know that I've put it any better than I have just now, and I still don't know what to do with that or make of it. That's so. So I have two. I have two reactions to that. Or okay, I have three. First is you know it's funny on the first read that didn't stick out to me as much, um, but some of the stuff you were tying together at the end with the angel scenes. And the immortality of, of course, discorporating, but you're never gone. Um, I do. So my first, th my first thought when you're kind of describing it was how it, it's really different than like um, sort of the Heraclitean or like Stoic cosmogony of like regeneration, right? That like the world is a never-ending fire that kindles up and kindles down, and sort of you know remakes itself through destruction. Because actually, what you like, what we kind of described is actually like the Martians fulfill something and then they move on. There's not like a newness that comes out of their completeness, right? They just they leave it, they discorporate. It, it, it's it's um, you, it's ambiguous at that point, right? Because, yeah, like they're 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 like they've eradicated these Martian cities, but they're still Martians. And in the and there there's the the whole moral crisis that the Martians are are absorbed with of well we have an artist who accidentally discorporated before finishing his work <laughs> and now we don't have a, an an aesthetic category to place this and this is like the cornerstone debate of all Martian society and that that gives you a really clear sense of you know the 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 type of things that concern them. Um, well, and 
but like there's not like there's there's not a new Jerusalem built on the old Jerusalem, right? Like that when the when the city is used up, like the polity right. moves on. Right. But the, and the other thing I was thinking though is that like I do think this book ends on the whether it's satirical or not, which I think fits in with what you're saying, it ends on an angel scene, right? And for for me, <laughs> the angel stuff, like that was one of like this book does so many weird fun stuff. I I truthfully did not see it coming when like so we haven't even talked about the foster rights. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. the there's the so main... <laughs> much stuff we haven't talked about yet. Like this book is just jam packed with perfect onsense. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so like the foster rights are like they're uh, they're sort of new, you know, like new Christian religion right that comes from foster who received on high it seems very clearly to be like a bit of a mormon satire even though it tries to take punches at of course like a southern baptist you know mercantilist kind of tradition peak american megachurch peak american megachurch perfect yeah and so um but there's this great moment when like you know all this nonsense that the phosphorites have been talking about you get like an objective third person start to a chapter which shows foster the beginner of this you know new religion he is in heaven as an angel just like he said he would be and his latest you know kind of leader of the church who by the way killed him <laughs> um <laughs> poisoned him this guy was just discorporated by mike and he joins him as you know angel digby or whatever um, and I, that, that to me kind of, that was one of the moments where I was surprised at what Highland was willing to do because it totally undercuts what you can assume about what's straightforward satire, right? Like if the Fosterites are right, there's sort of this hysterical way in which things matter or don't matter in a much more grand sense, because if it's just satire making fun of all religion, but it's also true, that's like a much weirder paradox. And I think that the book ending on an angel scene, like Bill said earlier, that includes Mike. I I think it gestures at what you're talking about. I don't think I have an answer for you, but I think it gestures at like this weird spiritual sincerity that the book can't quite kick out, even as it makes fun of all the ways spirituality has been expressed, especially in the American tradition. I I, I have one other small interjection before I before I, I want to hear Bill's Bill's take on this. Um, he Highland has a, another book called The Number of the Beast, where the um, the the gimmick at the beginning of that one is that the number of the beast is actually six to the sixth to the sixth. So you have this enormous exponentiation that gives you this preposterously large number that is actually the number of parallel worlds that there are. Um, and there's there's something about the 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 sort of the the mathematical aesthetics of the Martian three filled approach. And this, you know, clever number of the beast cosmology of this preposterous parallel universes that makes some kind of weird, um, you know, sense together in my head that you're presenting, all right, Martian society has, you know, this moral objective of filling an entire aesthetic space before moving on to the next one that's being played out on a grander scale with the you know literal angels talking about building out new wings of the universe um that you know it may be the entire point of this is just exploring and in and instantiating most importantly all of those levels of conceptual possibility you know this this you know infinite project that i also kind of ties in nicely with his his gag about being um and this is not just in this book, but he he sometimes described himself as a um, 
pantheistic solipsist, which is just a, a hilarious pairing of, of, of ideas. Um, but, you know, y- you might be able to tie all of those together into the, this, you know, big wacky game show of, of a cosmos and, a, and, an, and an ethos. Well, not, maybe not, not really the ethical side of it. That doesn't, doesn't scale in any, any meaningful sense. Um, but, you know, I, I, I can't decide if there's something to that or if I'm, you know, sitting here with my, my yarn chart on the wall, just, you know, (laughs) madly gesticulating at something that, that didn't actually make sense. (laughs) So I don't really have anything terribly clever to say about the, I I thought that was an interesting idea that the Martians would literally abandon a city. Mike at one point is flying over Washington and says, wow, you know, the city's not very old. It's only 200 years old, but the humans have got to be pretty close to abandoning it. It's so full of experiences, <laughs> um, yeah. which I thought was a is a fun, fun point. The Martian civilization, I think, is really interesting in this book because on the one hand, they are frequently positioned as being, you know, the much more enlightened and smarter and better way of living. And yet towards the end, he starts to pick at that a little bit. You know, I think I think it's Mike at one point who says, I think in maybe their own way, they're also parochial or maybe that's actually one of the angels. Of course, Mike is an angel, so I don't know. Somebody says that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I think Mike But maybe says the that. Martians the Martians aren't necessarily perfect. They're just maybe better than in certain ways. And Mike's, you know, towards the end of the book, Mike actually goes through a small existential crisis about whether he's just tried to turn humans into Martians instead of humans being the best versions of humans. Um, but I do think that this aesthetic emphasis is very, certainly an interesting way of doing things. Like the... Uh, I mean, what are, what are Mike's last words but ecce homo? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> well, I mean, not not but, not not quite literally in in either sense. I well, think he looks he at says, a grasshopper and says, "Thou art God." Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the thing I think is interesting is, is uh, like the so so Jared mentioned that you mentioned that uh, that artist right who died as he was discorporated by accident. Yeah, it, all it's the only thing the Martians are actually thinking about in this book really is that. But what's interesting is the subtext of it isn't just what do we do with this work it's also should we destroy the earth <laughs> because the the work that the artist was working on is a book a work of philosophy slash art slash music or whatever about the fifth planet that the martians destroyed which is now the asteroid belt right and yeah. so this aesthetic question has these political ramifications and i think it's pretty clear in the book that the martians don't parse a difference between those two things exactly so so i do think there's a a sense in which Martian civilization is is posited as being entirely concerned with this sort of aesthetic life that I think is certainly interesting, but I don't know as I have anything more clever to say about it. I feel like I should be able to say something about Alfred North Whitehead in this book, but I don't want to, so <laughs> I'm not gonna. <laughs> because well, I, just, I haven't read enough Whitehead in a long time, and I, I just mangle it badly. But I feel like that that would be an interesting... Because it's got the, you know, Whitehead's got that sort of pantheist stuff going on, but it's the process. It's always looking forward, and he's also got a really heavy aesthetic element in his theory. And so, someone smarter than me should do that. Well, there's a really someone probably already has. There's a really interesting way in which I also think so that the pantheism, especially when you couple it with like the transcendence, <laughs> actually there was more than once. Like I, t- I said earlier, there's some ways in which you know, religiously he seems very conservative to me, or maybe philosophically because he's however, jokingly positing this transcendence. And of course, if you couple sort of a, a certain kind of pantheism with, with transcendence, what you actually get is sort of a Christian idea of imminence, right? That like God is imminent throughout everything. And what I couldn't help but think of was um, when I was doing um, a, you know, a year in Oxford, I was at a Dominican priory, 
Bill, you know all about this. You're, you probably know some about it. But like, um, I remember I went to this one lecture where it talked about like the afterlife, and it was of course you know some Dominican who was talking about it. Um, Dominican priest, I should clarify, and uh, he was talking about how in heaven, like what's perfected, he thinks is not of course knowledge, but more like decision making or your ethical choosing. That like you will still not know everything because you will never know everything. You will certainly you will only be able to like choose correctly what you should know ad infinitum <laughs> and there's a weird way in which this book kind of reminds me of that as far as like if exploration is kind of the end goal which means there's no end goal and thou art god is everything like basically i was going to say like there's a certain christian element which is like you can't know god fully because you will always go on knowing god because he is imminent throughout the universe which is infinite whatever it's a weird way in which I, I, I find it like disturbingly, <laughs> like uh, disturbingly uh, at least related. <laughs> there, there's also a really big tension there in how you approach the notion of grokking, because in as, as it's presented in the book, once you know you know something so deeply that you are that thing, mm-hmm. you you grok it. You're you're reducing the distance between existing knowledge and action. And at, you know, if, if we're talking about this, this afterlife of continuous perfect action, like, if you say you'll never know anything, know everything, is that because knowing everything entails being everything, or doing everything, or um, can you know a thing you have not done? You know, you might, you, you might be able to parrot it, but do you grok it? Um, you may be able to recount it in detail, but do you... Like, have you felt it? There's that, like, internal psychological phenomena that's sort of implicit in the idea of... of oh, my God. Oh, my so God. Oh, my God. Mike Smith knows what it's like to be a bat. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did he f*** a bat? <laughs> Sorry. That's... <laughs> <laughs> no, I just... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I was just the Nagel essay. Come on. Oh, no, okay, I got it. Sorry. <laughs> also, yeah. maybe. Who knows? But, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the question, though, is on, on, on the cosmic scale, you know, is our, our, our knowledge and being and acting actually separate when we're, when we're looking at it at the highest sense? And is there a you know, can we coherently talk about any sort of scaled down version of that at our level? Because, you know, you, you could look at Mike and the Martians as, well, you know, are, is what we're doing analogous to God? Is it actually directly God? Or is it just another parochial bucket of weirdness that's filling up all of the mathematical possibilities of infinity? You know, I, it's it's not really clear that any of those is the right answer, and that's you know still why you know I you want to treat the book as more than a nose honking wrecking ball. Um, I rather like the idea of the, wrecking ball <laughs> in the face yeah. as, a, as, a, yeah. as a description that's of the right. book, um, because you know it it makes these questions so enjoyable and immediate and real without you know really giving a whole lot of clear statements about things beyond maybe we should look skeptically at monogamy (laughs) (laughs) that's great like 
that's 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 you know kill, killing ants with cannons. <laughs> so I had a couple of sort of Bill's Free Association theater things I wanted to point out before we start to wrap up, uh, and it's just like two or three quick things, uh, if that's cool with you guys. All right, so first, uh, the fair witnesses, first of all, are a fun idea. What you have are people who are trained with, like, a ridiculously perfect memory who, when they are acting in their professional capacity as a fair witness, they are just to stand there and witness things and draw absolutely no inferences other than just exactly what they can know in front of them. So at one point, uh, what one of uh, one of Jubal's secretaries is a fair witness, and to prove his point, he says, Hey, Anne, what color is that house? And she says, Well, this wall is white. Um, because she can't know for sure that the other wall is white, and if you asked her in three days, she would say, well, when I saw it on this day, it was white. I don't know for sure if it is or not today. Uh, and in the first place, I think that's a fun idea, and in the second place, it feels like a Mentat, but it's four years before the Mentats, so that's just a quick fun thing, uh, in Dune, right? Yep, that, that's literally what I was about to sputter up in an <laughs> <Yeah>. insert. <laughs> <laughs> I would also point out that I, I thought it was a fun, this is obviously just wild, rampant silliness, but, uh, People are really worried about deep fakes today, right? Like video stuff that's uh, going to be edited. You know, the example is the the Jim Carrey that's been superimposed over Jack Nicholson in The Shining, right? This notion that we won't be able to trust video footage anymore. And I thought, well, one solution to that might be to have a fair witness at every political rally, right? Um, if you could actually get people to trust them, which you can't because, of course, you can't. So never mind. <laughs> but it was a fun idea I had. No, actually, uh, I, I, sorry. I just, I really, I really also loved the idea of human objectivity as a counterpoint to all of the artificial stuff that like the layman can't control. But I, like you, I actually, I loved it partly because it's this like, it's actually this naive belief in kind of human capacity, right? Which I think undergirds a lot of the book. Well, it's, it's, it's perfectly compatible with the sort of positivistic um, linguistic implications oh, of totally. Martian language. You, you, so like there, there, there's this sort of perpetual underpinning what I've already said as Heinlein treating philosophy like it's engineering, that like they're 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 very consistent. They're fun ideas. I don't necessarily if they know if they they hold water at the at the end of the day, but they make the story a lot a lot more fun. Absolutely. Uh, another fun thought I had is just I actually really enjoyed uh, Mike's sort of weird engaging with reality once it starts to be revealed that he can do whatever he wants right the moment when he first annihilates the two cops i think is actually really effective Agreed. because you think of him as this, this sort of helpless person who granted has some sort of tremendous control over his own metabolism and then the cops threaten jill and then they just cease to exist um and of course what that reminds me of and what i think is, is interesting in a lot of i think it does some similar interesting things even as it's not a horror story is uh, of course jerome bixby's short story it's a good life which then also is is a, adapted into that famous Twilight Zone episode, you know, sending stuff to the cornfield. Uh, first of all, it's a good Twilight Zone episode. The short story is better. <laughs> uh, the short story is fantastic, and I didn't have any idea it would be that good until I read it in that Vandermeer Weird Fiction collection. So look that up if you want. But uh, that's, of course, where you have the three-year-old boy. He's I think he's like seven in the episode, but he's like three, which is, of course, scarier in the book. Uh, short story who has omnipotent powers and can wish things away and such. Uh, there's a similar sort of fun tension of Mike is a, you know, friendly floppy golden retriever who can also destroy things and doesn't share anything like our conception of morality. The moment when he astral projects out of the swimming pool and just annihilates oh, two entire groups yeah. of cops is, I think, really a very effective moment. It's also funny because, of course, it causes all the women to start crying, and Jubal just basically thinks about it and says, well, you know, screw the police, right? So that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I did think... I, Which I... 
Mike Smith. (laughs) (laughs) I did. But that's literally (laughs) Jubal's position. It's like, well, they were cops and I don't like them very much. So that's why. (laughs) Well, and I, I, the best part too is I agree with you. I I actually, I love it because it's a really smart, like, narrative mood. I think a lot of times things of like really direct action take on more, like, kind of uh, a more compelling tone if you don't treat it so dramatically, right? So, like, I think removing it to Mike's kind of like perspective, it's like, oh, those cops disappeared. It's this, it's this huge, big event that's given layers by his sort of casual dismissal, right? Yep. And the sort of final point to that is he's after he's grokked, you know, human society as well as he ever does. After having right sex before exactly he goes once. In, Sorry, keep going. Exactly <laughs> once, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but after that, he, uh, you know, right before he goes and martyrs himself, he breaks himself out of jail and also like takes the bars off of every jail in the county or something like that right and frees all the prisoners except there's a throwaway line later where it's revealed that he's killed some of the prisoners (laughs) that he thinks are too bad and can't possibly like are too violent yeah and uh, there's something about that which is you know this is a text that is for prison abolition and the death penalty (laughs) and that's just not every day that sums it up that sums (laughs) it up man that's the text (laughs) so that's that's i think uh all the sort of random throwaway things I wanted to say, but I just, uh, I wanted to throw those out there. I did like how on that last note, one of the things I kept thinking of was how, you know, Jubal and kind of Highland in the book kind of gesture to like, you know, Mike's powers being indescribable in a sort of, in the same sort of way that like a lot of physical phenomena are described are indescribable. Like at one point, I think one of the secretaries or Ben or someone asks Jubal, like, well, do you know how, you know, electricity works? Like, you know, you don't, you're right. Yeah. And so I, I like that. I always like that kind of like trying to ground it. And yet, of course, it reminded me of Wrinkle in Time when they, you know, Madeline Lingle takes so much effort to kind of explain a tesseract. And then it's just like, well, and then their dad just kind of teleported. <laughs> like, wait, like, cause he understood it. He just teleported. And it's a very similar idea. Um, yeah, where like science just becomes magic, sort of through a narrative hoodwink. And, and contextually, like Highland doesn't generally do that. You know, in in his other books, like he spends pages discussing orbital mechanics in Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and even in the books where he has like time travel going on, he you know if he doesn't have a good explanation for it, at least a lot of how he approaches it is by like lampshading the mystery of it and really like dealing with the gritty consequences of it. So that that's a, a, another kind of point in the satire column for me on, on this book. <laughs> well, I think we're probably about time to start wrapping up here, I think. Did anybody else have a last quick point they wanted to make? No. I mean, I could talk about this book for the rest of the week, so... <laughs> no, I, I got nothing else on top of my... All right. Well, as a last sort of housekeeping measure, uh, Joel and I, our next big read is in December. Uh, at some point, we'll release that episode, and we're reading War and Peace, the big one. Um, so come join us for War and Peace at some point in December. Uh, I want to specifically thank Jared for having this idea and for uh, suggesting it. Um, I had a lot of fun. I hope you guys did. <laughs> no? I had the most fun. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt Jared, but no, actually, I just want to I want to add to that, Jared. Thank you so much for suggesting this book and for coming on and being a great co-host. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right. So, uh, yeah, um, Stranger in a Strange Land, it's a really weird book. Uh, as I think we said, it's got some initial hurdles that are, I get it if you don't want to clear them. I do think it's a fun book to read, even as I'm not quite sure what it adds up to. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. So... Uh, Joel, I'll see you next time. Jared, again, thanks so much for being on the on the podcast, and uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, everybody. So long. 
never thirst. Yeah.